We're continuing in our study in the book of Romans. I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn to chapter 3, or you can follow along on the screen in just a minute as those verses uh, will appear. We're going to look at verses uh, 21 through 26 in just a minute. Um, Pretty much by every account measurable, 1972 was a very unremarkable year as history goes. Uh, Not a lot of earth-shaking events happened, except for the fact that probably the most earth-shaking event that happened was that baseball was ruined forever because in 1972, uh, Scott Holly, what happened in 72? DH, American League. Designated hitter. I knew I was, well, I knew he had the answer to that, even though I didn't prep him for that before. Uh, baseball was ruined in 1972 forever. But beyond that, 72, really not a whole lot happened. You know, it wasn't one of those really cool years, you know, like 1492 when, good, we're awake, or 1776, Declaration of Independence, or uh, 1812 had an entire war named after it, the War of 1812. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a, you know, a war and a cool thing, but that's pretty neat to have, you know, something named after you. 72, a few things happened. Apollo 17 happened. That was the last mission to the moon, uh, that the last person set foot on the moon did that. Uh, the Vietnam Peace Accords were going on in Paris. Those broke down. Uh, maybe you remember the, the Christmas bombing of North Vietnam, which brought them back to the table uh, 33rd president of the United States passed away, Harry Truman, uh, late in 72. Uh, and the EPA said that you got to put unleaded gas in your car. So none of those are, again, as history goes, you know, an astounding event. But December uh, of 1972 was, was a very traumatic time in the life of a young Tom Ricks. I was uh, 14 years old. Uh, I was sitting outside of the principal's office. On on or about December 20th, uh, which was a Wednesday, and we got off of school sometime that week, as my uh, recollection serves me, and my parents were in sitting down with the principal. That's never a good combination. Parents and principal together, you in the hallway does not bode well for you. I went to a school that year, and actually for, for two years, for, for, uh, for three years, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, I went to a school called Faith Christian Academy, which is up in Florissant, Missouri. And Faith Christian Academy had this demerit system. Uh, and if you talked in class, the teacher could give you a couple demerits. Or if you ran in the hallway when you were supposed to walk in the hallway, or you were chewing gum when you were supposed to, you know, you'd get a couple demerits here or there. And if they accumulated, you know, real big, like eight or ten demerits, you would have a, you know, maybe an hour in school suspension or something. So here I am in December, my parents are sitting, are in with the principal, and, uh, the, the total amount of demerits you could get to get kicked out of the school, to be expelled from the school was 80 demerits. I had 120. You can applaud. I mean, that's really quite an accomplishment. <laughs> and as I, as I sat outside the principal's office, knowing that I was about to experience a fate from which I could not escape, there was no way to make up for 120 demerits. Uh, I, I pondered in my mind this question. What will the authorities do? <laughs> the authorities being the three people that are sitting in that office. For the last uh, several months as we've gotten into the book of Romans, Paul has been talking about our demerits. <laughs> Paul has been talking in chapters 1 through 3 up to this point about the pickle in which humanity finds itself. We are without excuse. We can't plead ignorance. We can't say we don't know the difference between right from wrong. God has made that very clear. We can't say that um, we don't have enough information God has revealed himself to us, and yet 
humanity from year to year to year, moment to moment, we have violated God's law. We are guilty. And we are sitting outside the principal's office. And if you look at the first two and a half chapters up to, up to uh, chapter 3, verse 20, up to this point, uh, we would say that we might have a real serious problem on our hands. When the principal comes out, what is his reaction going to be to the guilt of humanity? We know that we do not, cannot claim innocence. We know that our nature is corrupted by sin. The big question and the question we left off with last week, if you happen to be here, was simply this. What will God do? Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Here, not my words, but his. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believed. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is a reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father God, as as Michael challenged us just a moment ago, that we would pray and ask, Lord, what is the condition of my heart? Lord, we know the condition of the human heart apart from a relationship with you through Christ is a condition of, of wretchedness and brokenness and hurt and pain and lostness. Father, as we come to worship you with our minds and our intellect, as we study your word, Father, my words cannot do justice to what you have said here. But I pray that you would use me and that you would open our hearts and our minds, every one of us, to hear what you want to say. To understand your response to our rebellion. Father, whether we've ever considered your existence or this is the first time that that thought has crossed our minds or whether we have studied your word for years and years and years, we all have more to learn about your character your faithfulness. So Lord, forgive me for my sin. I pray that I wouldn't stand in the way of what you want to teach us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come and that you would open our hearts and minds and that we would sit at your feet and learn from you. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, Paul says in verse 21, but now he's, he's turning a corner. He's moving away from explaining to us our true condition apart from God. He, he, he's built his case uh, for what the theologians have since called our total depravity, that every part of our nature is corrupted by sin. And he's now going to turn his attention to God and his reaction. Now, knowing what we know about the, the book of Romans up to this point, you might anticipate that Paul would start off and say, but now the judgment of God. 
or if you're an eternal optimist and, and the glass is not only always half full, but maybe it's almost all the way full, your response might be, yeah, but, but now the mercy of God, uh, if you're always trying to look on the bright side of things. Uh, but this response is, is neither specifically. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The question is, is that good news? How should I feel about that? You know, it's like you, you go to your doctor and you, you, know, you do all the blood work and stuff and then you get this report and it says something about triglycerides and good cholesterol and bad cholesterol and you know, body fat and all that different stuff. And you kind of look at it and you go, Am I, should I be happy or should I be worried? You know, I'm not quite sure what I'm looking at here. What is the righteousness of God? Is that good news for you and me? Or should it cause us to kind of run for cover and hide in fear? I believe this is the best news we could possibly get. And I want to share with you this morning four aspects of the righteousness of God and how it should impact your life in my life today. The first one I'm simply calling a righteousness that is revealed. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That but now I would consider the most important transitional phrase in the history of mankind. There's nothing more important. You will consider the rest of your life from the day that you were born until the day that you die. But what follows this phrase? Because it is going to identify for you and it is going to identify for me how God responds to my sin. What does God think about you? What's his attitude towards your rebellion? What is his thought about my unrighteousness? How is he going to respond? And Paul says, as I mentioned, he says, but now the righteousness of God, the perfect demonstration of God's character. In other words, uh, we're going to see his true colors, so to speak. Occasionally you'll hear somebody say, well, well now we're going to find out what so-and-so is made of. You know, now that kind of their back is up against the wall or now that, that they're at a point of crisis or at a crossroads in their lives or there's some pressure on them, now we're going to find out, you know, what are they, what are they really like? This is the answer to that question. What is the character of God? When he demonstrates who he really is, what will we see? The righteousness of God is revealed. It is manifested. In other words, it's made known. It's put in a, in a place of prominence. It's in clear view of everyone else. Maybe you've had this experience before. I've had this experience from time to time. I have friends come to town who have never been to St. Louis. Uh, and they're going to be driving into town or passing through St. Louis. And occasionally I'll get this question. Now, we, we know the arch is there somewhere in downtown St. Louis. When you get to St. Louis, will you be able to see it? <laughs> and you kind of chuckle and go, yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah, you pretty much can. You'll, you'll get, you certainly catch a glimpse of it, you know, unless the city is sock, socked in with fog like it's never experienced in the history of the world. I mean, you can't miss the arch. You, you have to see it. You have to observe it. They put it where you couldn't miss it, whether you're going north or south, east or west. The righteousness of God has been manifested. You cannot miss it if you pay attention to this passage. And there's one other revelation about this righteousness in verse 21, which I didn't underline, but it says that this has been manifested, this righteousness is apart from the law. What does Paul mean by that phrase? What he's telling us is that the issue of our relationship with God will not be determined or decided by our efforts to obey. Our fate is in the hands of God and not vice versa. 
There's nothing that I can do to obey, to follow the law, to follow the guidelines. There's no way I can earn my salvation, no way I can earn my way into right standing with God. We, were, uh, we, had, a, we had a hockey game last night, one of the teams that I coach, uh, and one of, my, one of my very best players on this team just got a really bad penalty at a, at a bad time in the game, and it was really kind of a bonehead move. I mean, it was really just foolishness. So he goes to the penalty box, and, and, uh, and normally when he would come out of the penalty box, we'd send him out on the ice, and he looked at me and said, you want me to go out there? And I said, no, I want you to come right here. You and I are going to have a little conversation. Uh, and he came over, and, and he sat down next to me, and he kind of had his head slumped, and I said, now, you know what you did, right? And he said, yep, it's on me, coach, I understand. And I said, now, you owe us a goal. You put us, you put us in a bad spot, now you owe us a goal. The kid's sitting right next to him looks up at me through his helmet with his mouth guard in his mouth, and he says, but coach, I thought it was all about grace. (laughs) I said, no, this is hockey, son, not salvation. (laughs) You earn your way back in hockey. (laughs) And he did. That's our knee-jerk reaction. God, tell me what to do. I know I've blown it. I've never met a person, whether they believe in God or don't believe in God, I've never met a person that says, I've led a perfect life. I have no flaws. I am morally completely clean. I've never met that person. I've never met anybody that disconnected with who they are. Everybody says, you know what, even if you don't believe in God, you don't really believe in sin and all that stuff, you think you're fundamentally a good person, you at least say, you know what, I know I screwed up from time to time. Well, if that's the case, can I earn my way back? And Paul says it's apart from the law, friends. It has nothing to do with your strength or with your ability. I I can't erase my demerits. God is going to reveal very clearly to us to his righteousness. And one of the first things he reveals to us is in the first part of verse 22, where he says it is an unrestricted righteousness. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus, we'll come back to that part in just a a few minutes, for all who believe. You need to to catch this and and underline it or mark it or in some way uh, catch note of it because Paul is giving us a two-sided promise here. And and on the one hand, he's saying this, all who believe receive the benefits of this righteousness. Not all who obey, not all who work their way into good standing, but all who believe receive the benefits of this righteousness. There's no small print there, friends. There, There are no exclusions to this, to this rule, I'll meet people from time to time who say, I believe God's a forgiving God. I believe God's a gracious God. I believe that Jesus died for sins, but I have way too many of them. I'm completely unworthy. There's no way if God really knows who I am that he would ever forgive me or ever be gracious to me. They have such a difficult time. All they see them, they see themselves as completely unworthy. Uh, it, it's interesting. If you, Cindy and I in our paths and faith, Cindy's my wife, if you, if you don't know her, um, my path was the one I'll talk about in a minute. This has been her path. Her path has been, you know, based on some of my background and some of the issues in my life uh, in my family of origin, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of pain there and I feel unworthy. It's hard for me to really believe I'm a beloved child of God. And this, Paul says here, it's for all who believe, not all the good people who believe. For everyone who believes, there's no small print. God isn't going to change the contract right before you sign. But the flip side of this is that not only is for all who believe will receive the benefits, but without faith, this righteousness cannot be gained. You cannot work for it. You cannot earn it. And there are no exceptions to that. 
You may be sitting here this morning and saying, you know, but I'm a pretty good guy or I'm a pretty good gal. I haven't messed up too badly. I really think that when I stand before God and say, you know, God, compared to all these other people, I'm a good guy or I'm a good gal. You ought to let me in. It it doesn't work that way for anyone. That was my journey of faith. My journey of faith was, I know I need the cross, but boy, isn't Jesus lucky to have me. I mean, that really was my attitude. It was an extraordinarily ugly self-righteousness that, that was just awful and awful to be around. And Paul says, understand very clearly, friends. If you're worried about being unworthy, it's for everybody who believes. If you think you don't need it, you are sadly, sadly mistaken. Your righteousness gets you nowhere with God. It is a righteousness that is revealed. It is it an unrestricted righteousness? But it also is a redemptive righteousness. Look at these verses starting the second half of verse 22. For there is no distinction. He's talking about between Jew and Gentile. Uh, for all, all of humanity, all of mankind from history, the beginning to the end, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Paul says here we are beneficiaries of Jesus' justification, his redemption, and his propitiation. Now, I'm going to take off my preacher hat for a minute. I'm going to put on my teacher hat for a minute, which I don't do all that often. But these are terms with which you may not be familiar. They may be terms with which you're very familiar if you've studied Romans, but you're not going to be able to get through Romans without understanding these three words. These are three of the most crucial words in the entire book. So I'm going to take a minute and do just a bit of explanation here. The first part of the gift is justification. We are justified by his grace as a gift. Justification is the legal removal of guilt. It is not a, oh, I guess it's okay, I won't worry about it. It is a legal act on the part of God whereby he declares that you are innocent of your sins. It is a returning to right standing, but it has behind it not just a person's opinion, not just somebody's kind of, well, they're in a good mood today, so they're going to be nice to me. It has behind it the full weight of the law. When the judge pounds his gavel and he says, not guilty, that is conclusive. It is done. There is no higher court to which we can appeal, which we need appeal. When God justifies, it is a legal transaction between him and the person of faith. The second thing is that this gift is a gift of redemption. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but back in November 28th, Tom Warner preached a wonderful sermon about redemption. It's on our website. Go back and listen to it if you haven't had the chance to. November 28th, it was the first sermon in the Advent series. And Warner talked a little bit about the pawn shop and about redemption. You know, you've got to put something in hock. Maybe, you know, you're running some financial trouble and you need some cash. So you take something that's precious to you and you take it to the pawn shop and you get some money. But eventually the idea is that you can go back to the pawn shop and buy it back and make it yours again. And that's what that word redemption, it's a, it's a financial transaction. Jesus bought me. Jesus bought you. We have a receipt. This is a promise of his word. And Paul goes on to say the third aspect of this gift, gift is put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That may be the word that, that may be the most difficult, the most obscure We don't typically use that word a whole lot in our vocabulary today. Propitiation means an official turning away of wrath. 
It means that God's wrath upon the sin in my life, which means my, me as an object of God's wrath because of what I have done, the way in which I've lived, the, the corrupt nature that is within me, that wrath has been turned aside. Paul uses wrath early in Romans. I'm not going to put it on the, on the screen, but listen, chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Friends, God's wrath is not a knee-jerk reaction of losing his temper. It is the righteous and perfect reaction to the sin and the corruption that is in my heart and in your heart. And through Christ Jesus, that wrath is taken care of and we are spared from it. The cross of Christ, it removes our guilt and restores our innocence. That is justification. It purchases us. We belong to Jesus. That is the redemption that is ours. And God's wrath against sin is poured out on Jesus, not on you and me. When Jesus went to the cross, I've said this before and I'll say it till the day I die, his biggest problem was not his physical suffering by any stretch of the imagination. It was the fact that he went to hell for you and me. That God took all of the wrath that we deserve and he poured it out on Christ. That's why Jesus screamed at the top of his lungs in sheer agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because he was bearing the wrath of God. This righteousness, you want to know if it's a good news or not? <laughs> this righteousness is a redemptive righteousness. This is a righteousness that reveals God's character. Now, if you, if, if you read this for the first time and you start to get it, or maybe you, you, you hear it again and you haven't thought about it for a while, this is pretty astounding, right? I mean, I mean, this is pretty amazing transaction. What you're saying is we get righteousness as a free gift through faith. But not, not through our works. Not, God gives it to us as, as a gift through the redemption of Christ Jesus. And I, and I have two answers to that. Yes, and guess what? I haven't even gotten to the good stuff in the sermon yet. Th- this is just the warm-up. There's something far more astounding to come. And it's found in verse 26. It's what I call a righteousness redoubled. <laughs> this was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, he being God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I'm trying to figure out what my favorite verse in Romans is as I study this thing, and, and I kind of change it every week. But this week, this is my favorite verse. When, uh, I, I think 8.1 is actually no condemnation of Christ. is probably my favorite, but this is, this is a close second. And, and I've skimmed past it so many times. I didn't actually see it um, for what it is until, I guess, probably the middle of last fall, and it was like a, a light bulb came on in my head. But here's what, what Paul's saying in this verse. God is perfectly just. He will not ignore your sin. You do not get a free pass. There's no get out of jail free. God never says, eh, I'm going to let that one slide. He is completely holy. God never looks at Tom Ricks and says, well, yeah, we'll, we'll let that one go. No. Every sin must be paid for. No exceptions. God is completely 
just. He will not excuse. He will not ignore. He is morally flawless. And so he is completely just when he condemns our sinfulness. But he is not only just, he is the justifier. God chose to take on the price for your sin and for my sin that the law demands. He is the justifier. He's the judge who rightly condemns. You know, he pounds the gavel and says guilty. Then he steps down and he takes off his robe and he goes and he pays the debt that we owe. He gives us his mercy. He is both just and justifier. Leon Morris is is one of my favorite theologians. And he wrote a a paragraph on this particular verse. And, And I think he says it so well. I'm going to read this this paragraph for you. He says, There is no antithesis between God's justice and His mercy. Paul is saying that it is not simply the fact that God forgives sins that shows Him to be just. Indeed, that fact by itself raises a question about God's justice. As Barclay put it, the natural thing to say, the inevitable thing to say would be, God is just and therefore condemns the sinner as a criminal. But if God had simply punished sinners, while that would have left no doubts about his justice, it would have raised questions about his mercy. And the God of the Bible is both just and merciful. What Paul is saying is that the cross shows us both. It is the fact that he forgives by way of the cross that is conclusive. Grace and justice come together in this resounding paradox. God saves in a manner that is right as well as powerful. The claims of justice as well as the claims of mercy are satisfied. A good bit of the rest of the Romans is going to to explain this more in detail to us. But friends, the, the astounding thing this morning is that God is both just and justifier. He is the one who is offended. He is the one who who has been sinned against. He is the one who has every right to say, now you pay the penalty for your transgressions, and yet he is the one who exhibits mercy. Now, as much as I love Morris's quote, uh, I think I found maybe a better better visual for us this morning. You're going to see it on the screen in just a second. Have you ever seen the play uh, Les Miserables? Uh, we're going to show you a clip on the, on, the scene, uh, on the screen. If you've never read the story or seen the movie, I'm going to give you a very brief snippet as to where we are when, when what you're going to see on the screen shows up. We're in 1815. The peasant Jean Valjean, and by the way, I never took French, so all you French students don't come up to me afterwards and you know, mess me up with that. Jean Valjean has just been released from imprisonment after 19 years. Five for stealing bread for his starving sister and her seven children and 14 more for four escape attempts. Upon being released, he is required to carry a yellow passport that marks him as a convict. Rejected by innkeepers who do not want to take in an ex-convict, Valjean is forced to sleep on the street. A passerby directs him, however, to ask for a bed at the house of the benevolent bishop, Mariel, who takes in Valjean. In the middle of the night, Valjean, still the resentful, revengeful criminal, steals the bishop's silver plates and runs, and he is caught.
Is anybody there? I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes? Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry! Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him! You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madam Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. Muriel is, is robbed, but he declares Jean Valjean innocent at his own expense. And it's a wonderful picture, but it is an incomplete picture. Because God goes much further. The, the priest reminds Valjean that it's now up to him to choose to live the right way. And many of us have that idea of Christianity that, okay, God redeems us. And now he says, it's up to you, but don't mess up because I'm still watching you. That couldn't, that, that has, that statement has Nothing to do with Christianity at all. It is simply a lie. It's not true. God says, I've bought you not with silver, not with gold, but with the precious blood of my son. You belong to me, but you are the new man. You are the new woman, not by your works, not by your effort, but because of my son, Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in him, when I see you, I see you through the lens of my son. So for those of you this morning that are wrestling with this question of, uh, this question of unworthiness, God could never love me. Your focus is in the wrong place.
with all due respect, because you're looking at you. God doesn't see you in Christ. He sees the perfection and the beauty and the glory of his son, which leads, which we won't talk about this morning. We won't get there till chapter eight, which is going to be sometime in 2014. Um, (laughs) Our adoption as sons and daughters of God. He calls you his child, his beloved. You are worthy because of Christ. And for those of you who, like me, perhaps are foolish enough to believe that your unrighteousness is anything other than a stench in the nostrils of God, I warn you this morning, turn from that foolishness. You are hopelessly lost. You cannot save yourself. It is only by the grace of God. It is only by his righteousness which is revealed to us that justifies you and redeems you and turns away the wrath of God. But now, the righteousness of God is manifest through Christ for all who believe. Let's pray. I'm not real big on altar calls, but while your heads are bowed and we're in in a moment of prayer, I just do want to invite, if you've never put your faith in Christ, if you've been working at it, or you've given up work because you know it's not getting you anywhere and you keep sinning, or perhaps you've thought up until this moment you were pretty good. Or you thought you were so unworthy God would never love you. And you want to experience this gift of free grace. I just want to invite you to pray and ask God to, to, to uh, welcome you as his child. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that you have no right to come before him. But that you in faith believe that Jesus has done that for you. That he has justified you. That he is going to redeem you, that he will turn away the wrath of God. And you're placing your faith no longer in yourself, but you're now placing your faith in Christ Jesus. We'll give you just a moment of a silent prayer if you want to pray that. And if, if you are a believer this morning, maybe pray. There might be somebody sitting next to you who doesn't know Christ. I just pray for the folks around you. Let's have a moment of silent prayer. Father, ever since we started this study last, uh, early last fall, late last summer, we have been under the weight of our sin and the broken condition of humanity. Father, I thank you that Romans doesn't end with chapter 3, verse 20. But Paul turns the page as your spirit inspired him and said, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest. And, and Lord, the, the thought of your righteousness scares us, but it ought not. Because your righteousness really is the perfect balance of your justice and your mercy as put forward in Jesus. And you instruct us in your word to accept this grace, this righteousness applied to us by faith. Simply believe in Jesus. Put our trust in him instead of ourselves. Lord God, I pray that there wouldn't be one person who would leave this room this morning that doesn't have new life in Christ because that righteousness has been applied to him or to her. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word of life. Thank you that you paid the price on the cross so that we could consider it this morning. We pray in your name. Amen.